Now it's on, so. Okay. Take one. Take one. <laughs> Hopefully the first and last take. Yes. So we're here today with Duarte Pedrera. He is a good friend of mine. I've known him for about five years now. Correct. He, he stuck out in my mind a long time ago when I was uh, working at the bar at uh, Harlequin Stadium yes. when AIG sponsored the Rugby World Cup. Can you imagine a more uh, interesting way of meeting someone? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I was working there and I already wanted to learn more about sort of the world of trade, perhaps not the world of trade finance, mm. but the world of business and finance in general. And Duarte came up to me. No, I, he came up to me because I was working in the bar, not for any yes. other interest. <laughs> and uh, I kept talking to him and then he just gave me his card. He goes, take my card. I like yes. your style. So from then, you know, we, we, we hit it off and we're here today, five years later. Yeah, it's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Duarte's got a very impressive list of accolades uh, when I sent him out the questionnaire. And uh, he's got a lot of things to talk about today, but we'll go through some of them. He is firstly a board member of ITFA. For those of you who don't know, it's the International Trade and Forfeiting Association. Although I tend to call it the International Trade Finance Association, yeah, for which do, some people try to kill me. The forfeiting it's very, guys don't it's like very that. contentious, very the, contentious. The forfeiting guys don't like that. Uh, <laughs> he's also head of emerging markets, uh, coverage and trade finance at Crown Agents. We're actually here today. He's very kindly uh, booked this room for us. He's the head honcho here for trade finance. Uh, he's also a member of the International Advisory Board of uh, Channel Capital, Yes, where I got your headshot from, actually. And uh, he's also the chairman of Shelter Them, a Rwandan charity working on poverty alleviation and mm -hmm. uh, empowering the youth uh, and the general population of uh, Rwanda, hopefully Rwanda, in the yes. future, Africa in general, being a world leader in that aspect. I hope so. Very it's, important. Uh, it's a big, big part of what I do. It's uh, what really uh, drives me as an individual and... It's uh, what lights up my uh, my smile uh, on on a day to day basis. But how do you find time for you? Got a lot of things going on. on, on many on many play. people ask me that, so it's a great that? point to it's a great point to start. I mean, um, I was always uh, an organized fella by yeah. by definition. I, I normally say that I've got a little bit of OCD, mm -hmm. um, but I started living life with a mantra that many people who know me uh, are already sick and tired of hearing which is prioritize and plan and execute. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this is very simple. Just list everything that is going on in your life. Um, make sure that you're as comprehensive as possible. And, um, and then start assigning priorities. And um, once you're done, uh, but don't fool yourself. Assign the real priorities. Mm -hmm. So if all of a sudden you, you feel like uh, staying at home and having a sleep, that's going to be your number, number one priority, okay. not doing work. Because guess what? In the end, you'll be staying at home and having a sleep rather than doing the work. So if you um, make yourself wrong for not doing the work, then it's just a fruitless exercise. Mm -hmm. So long story short, you then um, start allocating uh, the tasks in accordance with, uh, with the priorities. So say that number one, uh, spending time with, uh, with my daughter and my girlfriend. So that, that will be uh, straight up the, uh, the, the priority list. Uh, then, you know, work this, work that, mm -hmm. the different things that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and, and eventually when I exhaust the, the, the schedule, um, I stop. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever didn't get allocated will always get allocated the following week mm -hmm. or whenever there is time. The important thing is to live life according to your priorities. So because, uh, because otherwise you'll always be uh, saying, oh, I've got this dream or I want to do this, but I'll do it tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and eventually you're just fooling yourself. So yeah. that, the, the big exercise there is uh, just live your life under your own rules. And um, if you do the planning accordingly, 
And if you execute accordingly, mm -hmm. then you'll live a life that you love. That's right. um, another very important thing in that exercise, is, uh, given that you've asked me how do I juggle all the balls, mm -hmm. is that eventually if you um, plan for something, but um, your execution doesn't really happen, um, don't go, I'll start my diet tomorrow type of, <laughs> type of thought process. Um, the important thing is you just uh, reassign or replan and re-execute. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, don't make yourself wrong for, uh, for saying, oh, I didn't do this, so it's the end of the world. That's right. That's right. I think that's why we click so much, because it's the same mentality. Yeah. I sometimes speak at uh, my old, uh, once I spoke at my old sixth form, high school, I guess you'd call it. Mm. And uh, this is a practice I use myself, and I give it to my, my friends and my colleagues, whoever I feel would benefit from it. <coughs> so I have a thing where I have an A4 piece of paper, and I divide it into four different quadrants. Mm. And then on the top left, it says professional. It's a personal. Mm -hmm. Then next to that, family. Then underneath that, social. Mm -hmm. And to the left of that, professional. Yes. And in each of these four categories, I list what I would love my life to look like yeah, exactly. if I cared for my, my, mm -hmm. my, myself enough to make it happen. So even the in the personal, it could be learning new languages. Yes. It could be working out. It could be learning, a, mastering a certain field, uh, having more confidence in yourself. Mm. Anything that you feel personally you need to achieve as, as an individual. Mm. Next, I have family. So what if, if you could choose your life, which most people can, but they sometimes leave it to fate or they mm. think it's out of their hands. In what you can control, what would you put in that box? Yes. How would you like to have that established? Would you like to be connected with your ex external family? Um, not your external, your non-immediate family? Mm. Would you like to, where would you like to live? How many kids would you like to have yes. if you're at the beginning of your journey? Exactly. What kinds of morals would you like your kids to grow up with? What kinds of places would you like to visit as a family? Mm. You know, that kind of thing. And then the social, it'd be when you're not working, who would you like to spend your time with? Yes. What kind of influences do you want to have in your life? Well, that's interesting. It's interesting you say that because you said when you're not working. Um, you know what? I, I've learned a lot throughout the years. And the more uh, the years go by, and I, 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 I still uh, prefer that vision where I consider myself young mm -hmm. although I'm uh, <laughs> the, the, the years are punishing me um, but as the years go by the, the, the thing that is most important to me is has become that social side mm -hmm. interestingly um, so when I started my career it was all about career who I would become how much money would I make mm -hmm. and so on and so forth um, look I'm um, I, I, I've, I've, I've done well for myself and uh, and I'm very very happy with that uh, from uh, from a personal point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, just in terms of my own ambition, where I am in, in terms of my career and so on and so forth. Um, but it, it's not that. It's just realizing that life is so much about interacting with other people. So if you look at, um, if you look at my job now, it's uh, is a lot more about coaching. It's a lot more about managing teams. Uh, again, interacting with people, making sure. It's a, another mantra for me in life is making sure that I leave a positive impact in others mm -hmm. through my actions. Yeah, very true. Uh, and when you can, you can put that into your work, um, just makes your life so much easier. If you look at everything I do, so Crown Agents Bank, I, I manage a couple of teams and uh, eventually it's that, that personal interaction, making sure. I normally say to the guys and girls that uh, my job is to make sure that they have everything um, not only from an infrastructure point of view, but also uh, from from a mental well-being point of view, that they have everything they need to succeed. Um, same for the ITFA. I'm pri pri privileged to uh, lead the Emerging Leaders uh, Initiative, yeah. which is really, what does it mean? It means that uh, I've got a, a responsibility 
to together with with a great group of other people mm -hmm. uh, making sure that the industry is sustainable and that uh, the newer generations are well equipped uh, and prepared to develop their careers in in trade finance and mm -hmm. more than that they're they're enthusiastic about um, developing those careers mm -hmm. um, again same same goes for uh, for for shelter them i mean what i do at shelter them is uh, uh, to 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 help a bunch of incredible individuals uh, both in Rwanda and throughout the rest of the world, uh, making sure that about 170 children that uh, are covered by our programs in Rwanda um, are equipped to having a choice over their future. Mm -hmm. So that, that is a critical word, particularly in the shelter them environment. Um, what we do is, is not about aid, it's not about subsidizing, it's none of that. What we do is to create the, uh, the conditions and the possibilities um, for people, uh, for, for the children uh, eventually coming to a point in their lives where they can have a choice mm -hmm. and they can say, I either want to go left or right. It doesn't matter if yeah. it's the right choice, if they end up making the right choice or not, um, but it's about having that choice. Given and the ability to have a choice. That's it. And when, when, when you live a life of poverty, uh, one of the things that you very easily find out is that choice is not really there. Mm. Uh, so that's why our first task is to eliminate that poverty mm. um, as much as we can or mm. mitigate it as much as we can uh, and then eventually educate, educate, mm. educate. So as you can see, the, the, the common thread throughout my life is, is that interaction with people. Um, so I, I said, you know, work is an important part of your life, but the social side, at least the way I see it, yeah. Uh, trumps trumps everything else, and the that's really responsibility. what. That's it, and th and that's that. really what what makes me smile. It makes me smile at my workplace or my different workplaces. Mm -hmm. It makes me smile with my children in Rwanda, and uh, above all, it makes me smile uh, at home with my loved ones. That's a very healthy way to look at the world. I think you find, especially maybe the younger generation now, which is perhaps the same. You know, I don't like to say your time as if you're 102 years old. <laughs> I am. Uh, but <laughs> probably in work, in work terms, you probably worked 102 <laughs> years. You're right there. But there's a sense perhaps that people are a lot more anxious now to find, to yeah. fit where they need to fit, you know, quote unquote fit. But there's so much more to life yeah. that if you just open your horizons and expand what you feel success is, yeah. you can really achieve a lot more than what you first uh, s uh, stepped out to be. And that worries me a lot, you know, Klisman, because eventually, again, it's going back to prioritize, plan, execute. If you force your priority just to be, you know, looking at technical work or, or whatever whatever you may do and work, uh, I remember those guys in, in, I started investment banking myself or, or, or capital markets trading, um, believe it or not. So it was, uh, it was an interesting story, me and my screens, and then I got fed up of them. Um, that sounds like a book, me and my screens. Yeah, me and my screens and, uh, and eventually opening up to a, to a much better life on the, yeah. the social side. But to be honest with you, um, you know, working 24-7 is, is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I remember when I did that, uh, when, I, when I had the honor and the privilege to be one of the founders mm -hmm. of Stanabank in, in Angola. And there weren't many of us who were um, equipped enough mm -hmm. to, to, to run that place. Mm -hmm. uh, we started about 30 individuals, I guess, uh, of those about 10 uh, doing all the work and then we grew to um, about 400 and it was still the same 10 doing mm -hmm. all the work um, and I was I was working non-stop I, non I was working 16 17 hours a day um, and uh, that's not healthy right so eventually um, the lifestyle drove me into 
being a complete robot. Um, nowadays, what I do uh, merit and what I do feel is, is that quality time. Mm. If you have good quality time, I'm not a big believer in sleeping, in sleeping a lot. Uh, you know, the, 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 the other people in my life who are close to me uh, disagree with me. Mm -hmm. They think that sleeping is, is a lot more important than I make it. Um, but for me, if I sleep five, six, seven hours, say, mm -hmm. uh, a night is, uh, is absolutely fantastic and um, provided that I make the most out of my time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's how happy you are. Yeah. And if you wake up in the morning and you have a smile and you say, okay, let's do it, mm -hmm. um, then to me, you're achieving your dreams. Mm -hmm. You're living in the present and, uh, you know, making, making it count. Um, it's not a fairy tale every day, of course. For sure. Uh, life has its ups and downs always. Of course, always. of course. You need to be able to be prepared for that. That comes yeah. with life experience and allowing yourself to go through the motions. 100%. 100%. But um, how does trade finance link into this? Because you worked as a trader, then you got into trade yes. finance, and then <coughs> you, f you found a whole different world in that. You yeah. know, Even though from as a student, perhaps, uh, for any students listening to, to this, or even beginners in trade finance as analysts, Everyone with, with with the suit seems as if they have the same kind of job. Yes. But I, once you jump into the that suit world, you see that's so complex, it's so diverse. Yes, it and is. And you come into the world of trade finance. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, perhaps a little bit about your your, your journey? Sure. And some, and then the second half of that is some of the problems, i.e., the big gap in in in, uh, in financing. Yeah. Uh, you know. Those th those are two big topics. Um, particularly the second one. I guess my, my, my career, I, I, I'm very passionate about the opportunities I've had and I normally say that I was at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very grateful for all, all the opportunities. Um, so I, I, I talk about it passionately. But in terms of the trade finance gap, as you mentioned, or, mm -hmm. or the deficit in, in supply of trade versus the, the existing demand. 1.5 trillion. It's huge. It is huge. So that, that's where each and every one of us as, uh, as trade financiers um, really have the obligation to, uh, to do a little bit better. And I guess one thing for me is linked to the other. Um, because if we look at the way I was educated in the industry, it, it kind of links to, to the solutions um, that I personally have for that trade finance gap. Mm -hmm. um, so let, let's look at the first part of your question. Okay. So I did start as a hedge fund trader, um, which was a, a, a dream come true back then. Um, I guess everything was, was going well until I realized that I was extremely <laughs> risk averse um, and that my hand would shake every time I um, put a trade on. I put a trade on. So eventually uh, that relationship between me and, um, and the screens, the screen, <laughs> six, eight screens or whatever it was, um, didn't work so well. I remember one day, um, that's when I realized, okay, that, that's it. I'm, I'm really not cut for this. Mm. Um, I remember one day that I was, uh, I, I had a fairly decent week. Um, and, uh, and eventually I decided to take a call. Mm. It was Friday and all the traders had, had agreed to, to go to the pub. Um, and I remember the, the, the U S market had just, uh, kicked off and, there was some sort of number coming out, um, and uh, but the, the the market had settled now after the number, and when all the guys. This, what, what this was this? 2004, if I'm okay. not mistaken. Okay. So all the uh, all the traders uh, were already kind of getting ready to uh, to go to the pub. Some of them uh, had made their day already, so they were gone. 
Um, was this in was this in Angola? Or was this in no no Portugal? no? The, 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 this was here. This, this was in the in the okay. city. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, and eventually, uh, I was happy because I'd um, you know I'd made a little bit of money for the week, mm. so I thought, okay, I'm gonna deserve this beer. And um, my grandmother called, and I thought, okay, you know, it, it's an okay week, so I'll just take the call and put a position on at the same time, mm-hmm. which was a little bit arrogant of me, I think. Um, and guess what happens? The you position, yeah, the position capsized, capsized completely. It wow. was a, it was a complete car crash. I ended up losing quite a bit of money. For Do you the remember week. what the trade was? I can't. No, um, no wait a second. It was, uh, it was foreign exchange. I think. It was something like the uh, euro dollar or whatever that mm-hmm. went against me, which back then it, it tended to be a, a fairly volatile market yeah. um, with a thin book and so on and so forth mm-hmm. because we were trading on the exchange, on the futures exchange. Um, but uh, that, that, that was probably the penny dropping moment where, mm-hmm. uh, where I had to realize, well, I'm not cut for this. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came out of the position, I said, nah. Um, from there, I had, uh, again, coincidence, uh, an amazing opportunity. Um, I was talking about being the right place at the right time. Uh, clearly one of those moments. Mm-hmm. I was uh, uh, still with the hedge fund. And, uh, and I remember, you know, as, as you are a hedge fund trader, it's a little bit like the fintech guys nowadays. Uh, you go to the office on uh, your running shoes and your jeans and T-shirt and so on. And all of a sudden, I get a call from a headhunter saying, oh, there's a Portuguese bank in town. We saw your CV mm-hmm. and um, they're, they're building a, re- a representative office. Um, so they want to hire an assistant rep. Okay. Uh, could you come to an interview? And I said, yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd be delighted to, uh, to attend. When, when, when is it? Yeah. Uh, it's this afternoon. <laughs> Actually, so I turn up. So calling uh, sick, perhaps for the last. Uh, no, no, no. It, it wasn't so much of that because remember, you know, sort of trading environment is, is quite liberal. So I could just, uh, I could just disappear if you like. Um, but the problem was the way I was dressed. Mm. Uh, Portuguese bankers tend to be tend to be fairly conservative. Okay. And the, the the head of international was the guy who was in town. And then I realized that the, the other person, the senior representative, was a very, very, very polished um, English gentleman, uh, eaten educated, mm-hmm. um, who's still a dear, dear friend of mine and uh, to whom I, I owe a lot in, in my career. Um, but that moment I entered the room, I was going to be interviewed by these two rather stern, uh, experienced individuals. Uh, dressed in in their best suits, and mm-hmm. there I was in my running shoes. Um, but interestingly, so this this gentleman's name is is Tom Hoffman. is is an absolute brilliant uh, banker and and uh, an incredible person. Um, and um, and he ju- he didn't judge the book by its cover, uh, so we clicked straight away, mm-hmm. and um, and and we had uh, quite quite a few good years together. Uh, you know, later later down the line. Uh, he was even chair of um, of a, an advisory company there I ran for a while, and um, we were very, very close. Very um, but going back in time, eventually I joined that Portuguese bank, and um, initially I was doing a bit of capital markets research and, and sales. Um, but then I had the opportunity to, uh, to go into the wonderful world of trade finance. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the conversation, because it was the, the vice chair of this Portuguese bank. He came to London, and he said, look... Um, the representative office is a, is a great thing to have, uh, but we really want to take the next step and we want to open a, a full branch. And we want the branch to specialize in this thing called trade finance and forfeiting. Do you know what it is? 
interestingly at university i had had a really bad experience with the with trade finance because it was squeezed uh, into one of my lecturers programs uh, i think it was uh, a course on money markets and foreign exchange and the lecturer said uh, oh I'm supposed to talk to you about trade finance, but uh, I'm c just going to skip over it because <laughs> no, none of you will end up working. Uh, Those who don't care enough to work in that field. It's, it's, it's just a terrible field. It's full of documentation. Oh, it doesn't happen in the city of London. It happens somewhere like Slough or something like that, which I thought was fairly unfair. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and eventually it's just plain boring. Yeah. So I had that initial contact with, uh, with, with trade finance that didn't leave a very good taste. Uh -huh. um, and when this chap comes from Portugal and says, oh, um, you know, I've got news for you. You're going to be integrated in this trade finance team. I, I nearly collapsed. And, and, you know, second move was uh, calling all my headhunter friends to see if they could find me a, a role in equity sales or something like that. Um, which eventually didn't happen, yeah. which was great, because um, the best thing that's ever happened to me was eventually uh, I started working with, uh, with a team of very, very experienced uh, trade financiers. Um, still very dear friends of mine, uh, Teresa Casal, Josephine Grima, Chris Hines, and of course my very, very own mentor, which is now named uh, or naming um, the ITFA mentoring program, which is now a global program. Mm -hmm. His name was uh, Martin Ashurst. Uh, he himself represented the trade finance industry perfectly. Mm. He was the perfect trade financier, a gentleman yeah. uh, with a tremendous sense of humor. But um, above everything else, his word was always his bond. And he taught me a lot. Um, so eventually learning from, from, from those people, um, I started having more and more responsibility. Mm. I started my career in, uh, in, in back office, in operations. Uh, which, uh, if you imagine someone who up until a year before had been a, a hedge fund trader yeah. going into an operation. Very, very different uh, dynamics. Very different. Pace, so eventually finding myself burying my head in, uh, in loan documentations oh, and promissory notes and bills of exchange and letters of credit was, was a difficult exercise. Um, but nowadays, if I have to look back... Um, and pinpoint one moment that, that really defined my career was probably that. Yeah. Um, because I had all of a sudden, not an in-depth understanding because I didn't stay too long in operations. Mm -hmm. um, I stayed about nine months to a year. Um, but eventually it was, uh, you know, it was very, very important for me. And nowadays when I hire uh, in the front office function uh, for, for trade finance professionals, um, I always ask the question of whether the individual has worked uh, previously in operations or not, mm -hmm. because it does make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is between actually understanding your product uh, in depth or, or not. Mm. Um, so eventually after that, after learning uh, from the likes of Joe, Joe Grima and Chris Hines, I moved into the front office role, uh, starting... Uh, we, we did a little bit of everything. It was uh, very interesting because it was uh, more or less a typical forfeiting desk uh, back then. Uh, we would originate, we would trade, we would distribute. And my first task was actually to distribute, uh, especially large transactions. So I was given, um, I was given a, a list of names by, by, by Teresa, Teresa Casal, and she said, look, um, all these people know me. Uh, call them and introduce yourself. Um, and, and talk about the assets we have for sale. Mm -hmm. 
And um, that was a bit of a daunting task. All of a sudden, I had to call all these people around mm -hmm. the world who had never heard my name. They had no idea who I was. And, um, and all of a sudden, I'm supposed to sell them millions of dollars in, in trade finance facilities, um, which I was still learning myself. Yeah. Um, you know, fast forward a few months, and again, it was a, a brilliant exercise for me. So again, I was so lucky to have yeah. to have these people as my as my mentors. Your mentors and your leaders. In, in this Very game. much so. I think Very it's important so. to have people that have been in the game who can sort of teach you the ropes. Yes. So it's a lot, it's, you, you progress a lot faster, but it's not about the speed, it's about yeah. the knowledge you gain from these people. Yes. Yes. You can make a mistake yourself, but you can learn from a mistake and avoid it completely. I, I remember my first trade in, in trade finance terms. I, um, I, I, I was very, very happy because I'd sold a $1 million trade participation um, on a, an Azerbaijani bank uh, to a fund in Canada. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was about completing the trade. I was, I was beyond belief happy. You know, it's one of those moments where you'll always remember uh, who you sold it to, what you sold, all the details of the, the transaction. Mm -hmm. And I went to my boss and, and Teresa said, um, Okay, congratulations on the sale, but that, that sale is really rubbish. And I said, why? And then she explained to me, and, and she really, really turned the page. She said, look, you now have to replace this asset. So the asset was yielding uh, X percent. Mm -hmm. I'd sold it for Y percent. But it wasn't so much about the profit margin. It was about how we're going to get another asset mm -hmm. that is going to yield as much as this mm -hmm. one, regardless of how much we've made up front mm -hmm. in terms of a profit margin. Um, so that, that was a huge lesson for me, um, for which I'm, I'm, of course, very grateful. Uh, that, that day, it was a little bit, bit bittersweet, as, uh, as they say, mm -hmm. because uh, you know, I did my first sale, but it, then I realized I could have done better. Mm -hmm. But it's this sort of lessons that uh, really kept me going yeah. um, throughout, throughout my career. And, um, you know, as I progressed, uh, then eventually we had a little bit of a catastrophe in uh, international financial markets. Yeah. Many people think of it as being, as being Lehman Brothers. Um, I tend to think of it as uh, Lehman or, or trade finance markets, um, very own Lehman Brothers, which was uh, <laughs> a bit of a <coughs> debacle in Kazakhstan. So um, everybody who had trade finance lines back then was uh, piling up into uh, piling up into Kazakhstan, into a couple of uh, banks in Kazakhstan, without asking any questions. Mm. Uh, it was, if you want to define herd mentality, um, that was it, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and eventually we had, uh, we had a bit of that ourselves mm -hmm. um, at this Portuguese bank I was working for. And then the whole thing just uh, just collapsed. Mm. Um, so of course, for the desk to be caught with the potential losses in in the tens of millions, it was uh, it was quite disruptive. Um, the Portuguese bank still asked me to uh, carry on, uh, although they were going to disband the uh, the trade finance and forfeiting desk. Um, so they gave me a vote of, vote of confidence, given that I'd founded the bank here in uh, London. Um, but the you know after you take out uh, trade finance and forfeiting, there's not a lot for a, for a small Portuguese bank to uh, to do uh, in this financial center. Um, so then eventually I had uh, what I consider the big break in my career, uh, which was a, a telephone call from uh, from from a friend who was wor also working in the past for that Portuguese bank, uh, although in their Brazilian subsidiary. 
And um, he said, look, I'm now running uh, a bank in Angola, a startup bank in Angola. Um, would you care to, to come and help and, um, and run trade finance mm -hmm. and transactional banking? So I did. Um, completely different set of clients, completely different set of instruments and mm -hmm. tasks. I had to learn a lot uh, by myself. But again, I had, uh, I had some superstars in the industry who, who helped me a lot. Um, thinking of uh, Anne-Marie Woolley, uh, who headed up um, trade and commodity finance for, uh, for Standard Bank. Uh, my dearest friends, uh, Kenton Hartwell, Gwen Moaba. Gwen is currently head of trade finance for a Frexin Bank, and, and Kenton worked here with me at Crown Agents Bank. The roles reversed. I was uh, originally his, uh, his junior at Standard Bank, and, um, and then he came and very kindly agreed to work with me at um, Crown Agents Bank but is now general manager of uh, Africa Merchant Capital. So they taught me a lot about this new reality, mm -hmm. which was a lot more structured trade and commodity finance. Um, I loved it, and, uh, and I decided to, to head on to, to Angola. Um, believe it or not, I'd never set foot in Angola before the mm -hmm. day I arrived to, to work there. Um, you know, I, had, I arrived on a Friday, I think, uh, and I started working on, on a Monday. Um, and then I had the most hectic couple of years of my life. Um, again, I mentioned this, but sleeping part patterns all off, yeah, yeah. working too much. Uh, so my, my work day would start at about 6 p.m., just for you to have an idea. It would start at 6 p.m.? Start at 6 p.m. What do you mean? Oh, so the day before you'd... you'd no, 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 no. So my day between, say, 7 a.m. And, uh, and 6 p.m. Yeah. would be about going around, meeting people, uh, helping my team, I had quite a large team, uh -huh. um, just solving problems, right? And then at about 6 p.m., I would come back to my desk and look at my inbox and see 250 oh, unread emails, right? Um, invariably, I would then go on to the garage and get my car uh, at about half past 11 midnight. And then the next day, it would all start again so, at yeah. about 7. Yeah. Um, so how long was that for? How long did you keep up that routine? I managed to do that for a couple of years. Okay. But uh, but for my back then, my my wife, um, she struggled a lot because uh, she was uh, she was working in the center of town for a, for a large audit firm, one of the big four. What, in London? Uh, no, in in Luanda. Oh, and um, and eventually, uh, traffic was absolutely horrendous. Uh, so she would have to leave the house invariably at about five. Uh, and she would come back also at about nine, so mm -hmm. I, I I would barely see her. Yeah. So it was um, hectic times. Hectic times on the social side, it was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Angola is is an um, uh, unbelievable place to to live. We were very fortunate uh, of where where we ended up living. We had uh, an incredible neighborhood, very local. Very good. We lived on on the beach, literally. Oh, so you'd nice. open my uh, the back back garden door, and you'd go to the beach. Um, then from there, I um, I announced I was departing. Uh, I was departing uh, Angola, and uh, Stanabank. My original program was actually or um, plan was was to go to Asia. Uh, we wanted to to work in Singapore for a while, um, but Stanabank asked me to stay, and I was very honored with the invitation. They've asked me to uh, go to headquarters actually, in South Africa to lead. Um, transactional banking trade finance sales for the African continent. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't stay there for too long for the main reason for that being that uh, uh, my, my, my wife back then, 
couldn't um, couldn't find uh, or it was it would be very difficult for her to get a work permit. Yeah. Um, so I decided to come back to London. Um, the idea was that I would still commute for Standard Bank between uh, London and um, and uh, Johannesburg, but then of course ICBC took over the the London office and yeah. that that made it a bit impossible. Um, so I came back to London. I set up an advisory company, uh, still focused on on trade. Um, it was an incredible experience because it was um, the, the the first time I started something as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd started things before, uh, but within existing structures. Um, starting Caspian Sea Capital as an entrepreneur was was quite uh, a challenge. I did it with a dear dear friend of mine called Ricardo Cruz, um, and with uh, with Tom Hoffman who agreed to to be our chair, and um, in very short uh, period of time we we built ourselves an incredible network um, of partners uh, across many jurisdictions i'm thinking turkey i'm thinking azerbaijan i'm thinking georgia angola emerging markets markets, definitely so that 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 is another common thread uh, or trend in in my career as emerging and frontier market Uh, (coughs) more exciting markets you could say very exciting markets Um, things that that really really make me tick um, and eventually, Caspian Sea Capital would do all the legwork that I would do as a banker in terms of structuring deals, and then placing those deals with um, with uh, with with banks or mm-hmm. liquidity providers, mm-hmm. as we called them uh, back then. Then there was a, there was a bit of an event, an important event that uh, transformed my life. So the the birth of my my little daughter, and uh, <coughs> she was uh, quite a few years in the making. So. Uh, I thought, uh, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation mm-hmm. and your priorities and, mm-hmm. and really having um, family at the center of things, um, I thought, what the heck, I don't, uh, I don't want to miss the first few years of, mm-hmm. our, um, of, of our upbringing. Um, so, you know, it was between uh, being a Skype and FaceTime daddy living on, air, on and off airplanes mm-hmm. or being there. Yeah. Uh, so I decided, okay, Caspian Sea Capital has been a, a very, very interesting step in my career, but I decided to move on. Yeah. Um, so how old were you when you had your daughter? Uh, I was, good question, sorry, uh, 34. 34. Yes, um, which was just the, 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 the perfect time. Um, and then, uh, then eventually I was uh, invited by AIG. Um, I wanted a bit of a change, to be honest. So yeah. I had done banking plain vanilla structure, DeFi's corporates. Then I capitalized on that by having my own um, ad- trade finance advisory company. Um, and I wanted to do something different. Mm. Um, so AIG uh, still has a great team, but back then it was an absolutely stellar team led by, by Neil Ross and Will Clark, uh, two of the best people I've, I've ever worked with, to be honest with you. Um, who really took the time to teach me what uh, credit insurance underwriting was uh, was all about, um, and I had a great time there, absolutely great time. Um, and again, it fulfilled the uh, the purpose. I was uh, I was able to be with my daughter uh, for for the first few years of her life, and still, of course, um, but uh, instead of being on and off an airplane. Um, then and now we're coming to the end of the story. 
um, eventually when I thought that that's I'd when we met at when you were yes. at AIG. Yeah. Yes. So we met when I was at AIG. Yeah. AIG. So uh, uh, Paula, my my wife back then, she also worked for AIG, okay. and um, and we were asked by AIG to um, to very kind very kind of them uh, to attend the, uh, the the rugby World Cup final. Um, with the hospitality and all of that, and that's that's precisely what I hope we I met. provided you guys good service when I was very, there. Very good service, <laughs> and, good. and here we are today. We so are today. That, that that speaks for it. Um, <clears throat> but after, uh, so during my AIG days, I um, I, I had this uh, uh, interesting pact with a headhunter that is a, a good friend of mine as well, um, and uh, and I told him, look, as I move to AIG, I really want to be off the market for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, no, I absolutely understand. So I'll call you for us to, to go out for a few beers or a dinner or whatever, but I won't call you with, with opportunities. Yeah. I said, okay, that's fair game. Um, one day he called me and me, naive, um, I picked it up. I thought, you know, uh, he, he wants to go out for a beer. Yeah. And he said, you remember when I said that I wouldn't call you with opportunities? I said, yes, very well. Uh, <coughs> he goes, look, um, I really tried to stick to my promise, but there's uh, there's something brewing that I, th- I think you need to know. Um, and he was uh, Helios Partners, the um, now shareholder of uh, of uh, Crown Agents Bank, uh, looking for someone to head up trade finance uh, yeah. for Crown Agents Bank. Um, this was about a year in the making, uh, you know, conversations on and off. Then I eventually joined Crown Agents Bank in. Uh, in August 2016, mm. uh, it's been a, a really, really, really interesting ride. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an absolutely amazing place to, to work. I mean, for you to understand the dynamics here, you'd have to picture uh, a fintech uh, mixed with, uh, with, with a banking license and a huge component of uh, corporate and social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do in essence, um, which is a strange thing for the head of trade finance to say, because trade finance here is really a byproduct of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing we do here is m- we make sure that people, it, mostly in OECD markets, who need to buy and deliver what we call exotic currencies, so currencies from frontier and emerging markets, mm-hmm. uh, that, they, that they do so. Mm-hmm. And they use us as a one-stop shop, technologically driven, um, to get, say, for example, imagine that you're uh, the treasurer of a large charity sitting in, in Washington mm. um, and you want to disburse a million dollars worth uh, into your project in Rwanda um, using, using a country that is very close to my heart, as you know. You just uh, eventually come to Crown Agents Bank, buy the Rwandan francs, um, and eventually we will get them delivered, mm-hmm. uh, be it through uh, bank-to-bank or yeah. SWIFT, uh, ACH, or, or more excitingly, um, mobile wallet uh, yeah. delivery. So we, we recently acquired uh, an amazing uh, payments provider called Segovia, um, and uh, Segovia allows us to, uh, to get that uh, last-mile delivery. We're still, of course, fine-tuning, um, but I believe we're really getting there. But for us, it's great because, and for our shareholders as well, mm-hmm. I would imagine, because um, all of a sudden you're talking about uh, an institution with over 200 years of, uh, of existence, mm-hmm. um, but really being valued as a, as a fintech, mm-hmm. uh, very capital light and, and very efficient with a great, great social story behind it. Can mm-hmm. you imagine getting money down 
to the, the refugee camps in, in the DRC, yeah. for example. It, it really makes a difference. They go where others perhaps don't go because no, they're uh, less risk-averse to, uh, to the ups and downs of... I- exactly, and, and it's also technology-driven. So, Klisman, if you go into anywhere in East Africa, to be honest, but again, Rwanda, which is my second home, um, and you want to pay for a, a ride in a motorcycle taxi, um, you don't just cash it in, mm-hmm. right? So you and the and your taxi driver will exchange a few codes, mm-hmm. um, and that's you're using your mobile money yeah. uh, to pay someone. So when um, you know we're sitting in OECD countries and we think that we're so advanced from a banking point of view, mm-hmm. I mean, I really invite you to go down to to Africa mm-hmm. and 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 see how things are done. Mm-hmm. Um, again, from an infrastructure point of view, everything is kind of virgin and. Uh, mobile driven mm. which is quite good yeah. um, and you'd be surprised I mean yeah. from a technological point of view these guys really bat the ball out of the park um, <coughs> just still in terms of the, 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 the career and just to round it off um, again being at the right place at the right time um, back in 2000 and when was it 2015-16 if I'm not mistaken um, I decided together with the, the back then ITFA board to launch the, the Martin Ashurst uh, Global Trade Finance Mentoring Scheme, mm-hmm. uh, which became a, a huge success. And on the back of that work, I was invited uh, by, by the board um, to put my name forward uh, for uh, election as well. Um, I was elected, which was a, a dream come true. Uh, I was elected to the board of the ITFA um, in September um, 2017. Uh, I'm up for a re-election this year uh, in Singapore. I was elected in Edinburgh. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, since then, I've been leading the, the Emerging Leaders Initiative, which is, like I said at the beginning, Emerging Leaders Initiative, it's all about uh, creating opportunities, uh, creating opportunities for people who are keen in learning and finding out more about trade finance, how they can develop their careers in mm-hmm. trade finance. So w- what's it made of? Um, well, quite a few things. Um, one of the things I'm proudest of um, is is our educational work, mm-hmm. which spans across universities, for mm-hmm. example. We're very proud to be uh, the lecturers of the trade finance module um, within the, the master courses at Cass Business School. Oh, very um, We do that. Uh, do you sometimes teach there as well? I teach there, yeah. Oh, so I, I lead the program. So you're a lecturer as well. That yes. should be part of your academic <laughs> <laughs> I am a lecturer. Yeah. Um, I've lectured in, uh, in, in a whole bunch of different places. And um, so I'm, I'm uh, you know, I've lectured at my former business school in Lisbon. Mm. Uh, I've lectured for uh, CUNEF uh, Madrid, but when they were visiting yeah. London, uh, I've lectured in Munich. Yeah. Uh, the next one will be uh, in Madrid. Um, we're going there on the uh, 23rd of April, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, uh, Instituto de Impresa. Um, and uh, again, we, 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 do that, we do that all the time. We're now in conversations with London Metropolitan, Queen Mary. Yeah. Uh, so these things will, will happen very soon. Very um, we're also lecturing in different places, not only just um, Portugal, Spain, Germany, uh, and so on. Um, our chapter in, of emerging leaders in India uh, will be lecturing locally as well. Uh, so that's, that's all very exciting. So 
education through contact with schools and universities mm -hmm. is one thing mm -hmm. to increase the awareness of uh, trade finance to make sure that 100% you need that uh, absolutely and to make sure you know i'm i'm living proof because yeah. i didn't want to come into trade finance because of the the negative sure. image that i had yeah. caused by or created by that by lecture. your lecture exactly yeah. so you're doing exactly the antithesis of what your lectures were doing uh, absolutely because it, it is exciting you're dealing with some very international issues yes very relevant issues and things that really matter for the world economy and world peace i mean it, it sounds dramatic but it does matter no, because when, con when countries right. don't trade with each other they have no real connection no. which leaves animosity and things to derive out of that yeah, look, look to at trade together, stay together. Uh, absolutely, and look at what's happening now on the back of protectionism. And yeah, so on. we're going to get into the protectionism. <coughs> it's Pe be a big people topic. are people are just talking tough now, yeah. um, and 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 if you don't get trade to lower these barriers, yeah. then it becomes it becomes very very difficult. So then, what what happens, for example, because you mentioned you wanted to talk about the trade finance gap? Yes, is one point five trillion dollars gap in what needs to be financed and what is financed, mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, typically, from you know, from what I know about it, and I'm sure you're going to educate us about it as well. One of the main reasons as to why that is is because there's is a lack of AML and KYC uh, regulations for banks to be confident that they won't get fined or they have all the paperwork in place. Typically, this happens in countries or in continents like in continents like Africa, where mm -hmm. their AML KYC capability and their standards aren't as uh, or as aren't as uh, synced to yes. to Western markets. What? How does that play out in reality? So, if if I can't finance an an SME, and SMEs are the biggest groups of kinds of companies that don't get financing, yeah. what happens as a result of that? Can you go through the process of what that means? Absolutely. So, and give us some examples, perhaps, of projects that you could have worked on, but because of certain reasons, you couldn't. Uh, look, for for me, the, uh, the 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 examples are are less so, and you'll understand from from my answer, because I. I Look, what you said is the script in terms of what, for example, is uh, in the Asian Development Bank, they yeah. do a tremendous survey every yeah. year. Um, and they say, you know, if you ask the bankers, uh, what do they say the main obstacles are? And I know those figures because uh, I've included them in, in my lectures as mm. well. <laughs> so number one is undoubtedly uh, compliance. Mm. But listen, I mean, when you work for a bank, and this is very controversial, some yeah. people don't like me saying this, but when you work for a bank, um, compliance becomes a bit of an excuse. Uh, so, for example, Crown Agents Bank. I mean, we don't shy away from compliance. We take compliance to the, 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 the well, it's, it's our raison d'etre, uh, our reason for living. Mm. Um, but we make it a competitive advantage for us because we're so good at compliance mm -hmm. um, that we, we're actually setting the trend and ed educating is probably a bit of a strong word, but enabling banks and, um, well, mostly banks in places like Africa and Asia and the Caribbean and so on and mm -hmm. so forth, uh, and parts of Latin America, to become, um, to become good at this compliance thing. Mm -hmm. So we're often engaged by supranationals like the IMF and the World Bank and mm -hmm. then cascading down to central banks and so on. Uh, to work with the commercial banks in these places to make them good mm -hmm. uh, in terms of um, compliance and raising the standards. Mm -hmm. I mean, <coughs> I'll never forget um, when people tell me that compliance is an issue. Okay, compliance may be an issue, but it's more of a cost issue if, mm -hmm. we're, if we're truly honest. I mean, it is <coughs> how much you're going to invest as a, an institution 
in onboarding another institution in a small country yeah. um, that you know is not going to yield enough for you to cover the your 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 human costs and mm -hmm. your infrastructure costs and so on and so mm -hmm. forth so that that becomes a massive issue um, but it's a cost issue it's it's not really uh, it's not really a matter of um, you know how dangerous these places are of course there is an element of that because then you allocate resources with in accordance with your perceived risk but answer me this if it was a matter of engagement from the local counterparties because as everybody says every they're all so bad and so yeah. risky how do we explain that a bank in sierra leone for example um, when we went in and did our due diligence and mm -hmm. we told them what they needed to do in order to become uh, you know, kind of world-class from a compliance AML AFC point of view. Mm -hmm. They go out and they hire a hundred temporary staff to make good their account opening forms mm -hmm. with their clients yeah. um, in a space of three months. Do you want to answer that? Mm -hmm. I think part of it is the fact that you guys as crown agents <coughs> have an experience in working in emerging markets. So you know, you know their sense of uh, their, their, their tempo and how yeah. they respond to your requests. Yeah. Uh, banks who typically work in more established markets may not even want to get involved because they, they, they think it's too sticky, it's too messy. We're not even going to make a lot of money since it's, since it's, it's an it's SME. It's the money issue. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the, an, the money yeah, issue. It's an SME, so how much can we really flip it for? Uh, not too much. Let's stick to what we know. And that gap will grow. But if it doesn't affect us, then it's, it's not our responsibility to go everywhere. No. It's to go to where we feel comfortable. If we don't feel comfortable, that's where you guys pick up the slack. And that's where you guys can become real leaders in this and helping Definitely. those institutions. Uh, and if you think about it, it's it's a matter of scaling as well. So if you're financing an SME for, I don't know, half a million dollars, um, I would dare saying that the effort invested and the mm -hmm. manpower invested would be as large as a $10 million facility for a trader somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the legal costs and so on make it somewhat ineffective. So that is also one of the origins of the trade finance gap. But mm -hmm. the interesting part, if you look at the assessment by the Asian Development Bank, mm -hmm. is that the biggest slices are around creditworthiness of the, the, the borrowers yeah. and also uh, structuring ability. And I normally tend to collapse both of them because you can look at or you can mitigate the creditworthiness or lack of it um, through structuring. So why did those, you know, your first question about my career and my path and yeah. so on and trade finance gap, how do they fit so well together? Uh, and, and that's kind of the cherry on top of the cake here is, because it's all education driven, mm -hmm. right? If you don't understand what you're doing, if you don't understand um, how to take security, for example, in a trade finance transaction in an emerging market, and eventually how you can create economies of scale uh, around taking security for different um, uh, borrowers, SME borrowers, for example, um, you'll never be able to, to cover the trade finance gap. If it was just a matter of compliance, then we all shy away and the gap will only tend to increase. Mm -hmm. If we're serious about, um, you know, I normally say something that, again, is very controversial and mm -hmm. I apologize, I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but as many people, uh, bankers tend to be somewhat uh, reluctant to go the extra mile, Yeah. right? 
Um, yeah, conservative as, as a profession, they want to mitigate risk as much as possible. So why yes. go into an area where we don't know? You, you don't go the extra mile. You're afraid of the unknown. You're anxious. You're this and you're that. And you're fearful. Also, compliance costs are a lot. And being fined yes. by some of uh, the FCA or the SEC is uh, it's not a pleasant. big hole. Yeah. It's not pleasant. But the thing is, if you do it properly, you don't get fined. If you do it properly, you don't you don't get fined. If you do your security as well properly, mm. you mitigate the creditworthiness and you mitigate your your, your structures mm -hmm. and collateral and this and that. Um, but the most important thing is to go from A to Z in in the value chain, right? Understand your cash flow gaps. Understand how to extract security from the the the, the client's operational cycle, mm -hmm. and eventually what security really works. So have a good lawyer at all yeah. times. Um, then people talk a lot about fintech um, as a solution. As a solution, or I think. I, I, no, people see fintech as, as the holy grail, right? Yeah. Um, I don't see fintech as the holy grail. Yeah. Uh, I see fintech as being part of the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, it's the same as the the the, the rise of the uh, the internet, yeah. right? So, before the internet, we were all kind of. Uh, sending funny messages to, mm -hmm. to each other and dialing up uh, telephone calls and so on and so forth on the fixed lines. Mm -hmm. After the internet, the, the world became a lot more democratic. Mm -hmm. But the internet is just a channel. The internet revolutionized the way we exchange information, but it's just a channel. It didn't, rev well, in some aspects, it facilitated the revolution in terms of content, um, but the content was one way or another always there. So FinTech to me is the same. Unless you address the fundamental issues like compliance, like mm -hmm. creditworthiness, like structuring, and so on and so forth mm -hmm. in the trade finance world, just because you're using a slicker channel, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you're going to decrease the trade finance gap. Mm -hmm. And I think this is absolutely critical. If you use technology and fintechs as an enabler of better solutions around compliance, creditworthiness, structuring, and so on and so forth, due diligence-led... Um, then, of course, you make them a lot yeah. lighter from a cost point of view. And that's where blockchain and the yeah. likes will, will probably kick in and, and yeah. help a lot. But do you think that's where the excuses come in as well? Because people would then will say, oh, we don't understand how this fintech works. Mm. So by the time we, we, we adopt this, a new fintech will come out. And that's, I mean, their, 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 their core reasons, they don't really express too much, perhaps because they don't want to, which are going into uncertain markets, mm. It, it, it's gonna it's gonna put a hole in our uh, in in our uh, in our profits if we get fined we don't understand it the profits aren't there these are the real reasons yes and they 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 the excuses or the reasons they give are, are compliance you know fintech uh, maybe not understanding the market as well yes. uh, as you said the defaults on 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 the services they provide all of these things become reasons as to what mm. it is but the core is something else definitely is that is perhaps perhaps because you've worked in in these markets in the past you understand a lot more and you work better with bankers and organizations who have that experience, life experience working in these frontier and mm. emerging markets. That's why you as, an or, uh, as a person and Crown Agents as yes. an organization are it, much more it, it is. It is about that level of knowledge. Do, do uh, people, make, make no mistake. But it, it, you can't create a shortcut. It, but it's, it seems strange to me though, Karate, because trade finance is so global in, in its nature. Surely you need to have a global mindset, a global knowledge of how things work yes. for you to be pr profitable and also enjoy the work you do. So then how do you marry up the reasons as to we don't understand it, but you are a trade. Trade finance is all this kind of Remember, uh, you know, so game. Remember, so it depends on business. the organization or organizations you work uh, with or you work for. Um, you know, I've, I've, I know organizations where 
as a uh, as a trade finance employee, you're basically just uh, you know doing a very very small part of the mm -hmm. chain. So, like for example, you're selling pigeonholes. That's it. You're selling letters of credit and guarantees to clients in the northeast of England mm. in a given industry, mm. right? So, how restrictive is that? Mm. Again, going back to my career, if you look at my career, I've, I've been in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. I've been very lucky, but I've done pretty much everything mm. except managing a fund, although mm. I've, I've been challenged to do that already, mm. uh, <coughs> and perhaps working for a, for a commodity trading company, mm. although I do work a lot with them, so I know mm. how, the, how oh, they work. Um, I haven't been pigeonholed. So the whole thing I do for the ITFA, for example, is with the mentoring schemes, mm. with the awards, with the educational seminars, etc., is to make sure that our emerging leaders have that broader knowledge of trade rather than, exactly, rather than being pigeonholed into one or two products and eventually making that their life mm. until there's some sort of promotion and they mm. get to go to a different part of the bank and yeah. eventually they don't get to enjoy trade finance yeah. for the yeah. exciting yeah. thing it really is. Yeah. It's really good you, you say that because I've been exposed to the young professionals community. I'm part of it as well. And you meet some really interesting characters. You know, mm. Puya, for example, is, no, is, is, is a good friend of mine. I've known him since uh, before, and I'm sure he's going <coughs> to you know, enjoy having his name mentioned. He's, he's really good. He's a really he's good, an amazing he's guy. He's a very active character as well. And I find One of my first mentees. Yeah. He's <laughs> a, I mean, you find these kinds of people. I, I, because I've been involved in some other young professional things in the past, but it seemed like the people who, who went there, really all they want to do is kind of suck up to the, the bosses and mm. just have their face shown, you know? But in this community, when I go to the, the, uh, the uh, events, they, they take their responsibilities in this program very seriously. Yes, and they, they actually do. create, you know, they create the website, they create, um, you know, you guys were involved in those TV interviews as well yes. with the, with the, the Deutsche Bank TV. Yeah. So you, the, you're out there and they're hungry to learn about mm -hmm. it. Be, uh, perhaps because it is so international and they have the mentorship of you and your colleagues to tell them that it's not just, you're not pigeonholed into this one thing, but this one thing is related to such a big mm. array of work you can do. Keep your mind open in the macro, but work in the micro. Yeah. One, one thing I learned from, from these guys is that, um, you know, they can do anything they want. Mm. They've got a different level of motivation. Um, is it is the difference from your generation? Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, how, how so? <laughs> What, what were your generation thinking about and what are we thinking about, do you think? I, I don't know. My, my generation, there's not so much of a gap, but yeah. uh, I'll probably look into uh, the generation before mine. Yeah. Um, the baby boomers. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's probably less ambitious, uh -huh. um, more conformist. Mm -hmm. You know, life is the way it is, yeah. just suck up and live it. Um, your generation is a lot more... What can I do for myself, mm. really, to, you know, develop myself as a professional? But not only that, going back to what we were discussing at the beginning, to, to have a great life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what makes the difference. That's what, you know, that's the difference between oh, I have to go to a seminar because they serve they serve a really really great bacon roll, or going to a, a seminar because I'm going to meet X Y Z mm. person who's going to share, could. You know, possibly not even about trade finance, yeah. uh, but who's going to share about something Some that's going on? That's it. Know, yeah. Something that's going on in their lives, and um, yeah. and that's making them um, making them excited. Well, that's the reason why I come to the, the events. I'm I'm involved in trade finance in in this in this association, and also in the work that I want to do. As you know, everyone sort of understands yes. geopolitical risk and globalization and te technology. These things matter so much to trade. 
and it's so vital for the industry to understand. So I approach it from that point of view. But everyone who I've met is very active, and mm -hmm. I like that. And I think w you need to cultivate that um, that mentality young. It's easier to mold the minds when they're young as opposed to change it when they're old and they're stuck in their ways. I've got no further. I've got uh, one one of the best uh, one of the best people I've ever worked with. Uh, he's not even 23 yet. Yeah. Uh, Nigel Atamenta, who uh, together with uh, Charlotte Pryor and Alero Ruby won this year's um, Emerging Trade Financier of the Year Award, mm -hmm. or last year, sorry, yeah. so 2019. Yeah. Um, Nigel, I've started working with him about 18 months to two years ago. And I can tell you, the guy's 23 and he's already one of the leaders on the floor out there. Mm -hmm. He is just completely unstoppable yeah. at the age of 23. Yeah. It's it's unbelievable. Of course, he's a gym, and I, you know, I don't want, or I can't think that everybody is an idol, mm -hmm. as as we say it out there in the floor. Um, but but he does set a very very high standard. Yeah. Um, how would I define him? Is is hunger for knowledge yeah. or hungry for for knowledge? Yeah. Um, he is very humble, uh, very determined, but he's got an incredible strategic mindset mm -hmm. and and he knows what he wants i mm -hmm. think that last part is yeah. very important knowing which one yeah he knows what you he need wants. to have self-awareness though for that you need to know who you are and Definitely. what you can achieve and then go for it you know what his first uh, year at crown agents bank looked like what? it was basically grabbing his laptop going into conference calls and meetings and writing notes yeah and most people i know of his age would think that you know like me when i started you know i'm, I'm a hedge fund trader look yeah. at me so yeah. important um, Nigel couldn't care less. Mm. Um, so that that trait of being humble yeah. and and um, hungry for for knowledge is absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually, when he felt he could bloom or blossom, yeah. um, you know, he he he's been just on on an upward scale. And uh, uh, we we we're all running bets around here for when he will be uh, the boss of all of us. <laughs> and, and and we you know the, the the agreement is that it won't uh, it won't take too long. But but it really defines. Uh, Nigel is a, is an active member of yeah. the uh, Emerging Leaders Committee. But it really defines um, how I think. Your generation is is a lot uh, more driven mm -hmm. uh, than the, the the previous generations. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. Well, what do you think, Abusin? Yeah, we have uh, we have a uh, Kapusin is 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 helping us. She's at UCL. She's uh, she's studying uh, Middle East, not sorry, uh, uh, East East Eastern Europe studies. Wow. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was at university about five years ago. It seems so long ago, even now when when I, when I think about it. But I think students now or young people now have the education. Uh, but it's really up to the person themselves to determine what their life looks like and yes. having the confidence to do that. I mean, the stresses that my parents had when they first came to the UK, for example, were completely different to what mine are. Absolutely. You know, but I say that my stresses are for my day. Yes. Yours were for your day. Yes. And my dad always says, oh, well, you, what, what I had to go through coming here, you guys will have experienced 0.5% yes. of it. What, what do you have to complain about? Yes. But we face different things, which are good and yeah, bad. Exactly. But it's the way you, you think about the struggles. The, the, the scale is what you make. Yeah. Right? So my struggles your struggles i mean it, it and your fathers and my fathers mm. and so on and so forth yeah. it, it's all about what you make where yeah. you are in life exactly. right so all of a sudden life takes uh you know takes uh, a different direction mm. and um it's about how you're going to embrace it very true i i tend to see things as opportunities yeah. to be honest with you um 
again, it's not always like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes life seems really great and miserable, yeah. but uh, I tend to give myself a, a good kick in the backside. Yeah. But uh, even if it is great and miserable, you have to go through that period. Know that yes. that's how I feel I'm going to go through it and then yes. come out. The other. Don't, don't determine your whole life is going to be that way only because you're going through that stage. You know, Mourning period is absolutely, absolutely critical. I would say that you know, when I hit rock bottom, um, those were probably the, mo the critical moments of my yeah. life. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, uh, and I, I've mentioned this at the beginning, going from being a hedge fund trader to being an operations clerk, which, very was, different, very different mindset. which was my title back then. Can you imagine? Operations yeah, clerk, clerk, which is a lovely title to have, but from a guy who was a futures trader before yeah. and who ambitioned this wonderful career in capital markets and who had been given this lecture on how horrible trade finance was. Yeah. Um, didn't really resonate. Yeah. So of course, you know, it was a down moment. But mm. uh, what happened? You know, I had two choices. Yeah. One, I'll just let myself go. Two, I'll pick myself up and yeah. um, and eventually make something out of it. And uh, and that's what happened. I had the tiger. Absolutely. That's good. <laughs> We're going into this, uh, probably veering into a different aspect. We hmm. touched on it earlier, and it's something that we hear a lot about in the world of trade. And it's related to, to what's happening. Now, I think two things I'm going to jump into. One is sure. protectionism. Mm. And one is something that I would love to take your point of view on. And is how is the China-US trade war actually affecting trade volumes and, and how, it's, how it's happening, how it's affecting on the ground? Is there a lag in, in seeing the effects or is it very instantaneous? Let's start on the protectionism mm. side of it. The world's becoming more protectionist, as we can see. Um, in preparation for this podcast, I, I researched, um, it was online, a, a UK law firm, mm. uh, Gowling WLG, in 2017, November, published a study on this. And uh, this is pretty obvious stuff, but they put the numbers to it. They said, since 2009, the world has implemented more than 7,000 measures believed to be injurious to global trade. Mm. The US has passed up 1,300 uh, pieces of legislation way before Trump came into office, even. But the biggest sort of um, proponents of protectionism uh, were Argentina and India. Interesting. With uh, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, you know, bucking the trend by being the most open, most porous mm. in terms of their own. Certainly uh, Saudi Arabia need to innovate because they can't rely on oil for the yes, rest of their lives. You yes. see the IPO of uh, Saudi Aramco yes. <laughs> to get the cash in to develop, right? Yes. But from your experience, how has protectionism affected your line of work? Listen, protection how would you define that? Protectionism is there and, um, and, and it's undoubted. And to me, it's a much bigger conversation, right? So mm -hmm. we need to look into history and that's why I get very concerned uh, with, with the current times and not just within trade finance or, or even banking. Um, I remember when the Lehman Brothers crisis happened. I started reading a book about the Great Depression and, and everything that happened following the Great Depression. Yeah. And... And if you think about it, we may be going in repeat mode. In uh, a cycle. As we speak, yes. Yeah. And that's the concerning part, because we all know that the Great Depression ended up in, in you know, people beating themselves up badly um, in, in the Second World War. Mm. But if you look at it, you know, it was a big financial crisis. Um, and what's, what's the tendency you have in, in when things go wrong? I'm not talking about you, Klisman, or me. But I'm talking about... As a society. Yeah. Society. We tend to point fingers out, right? Mm -hmm. It's not my fault. It's that guy is stealing you my job. You start to act yeah. out. So it's, it's, you know, and then you have right wing or extreme left wing um, coming into power and it polarizes society, mm -hmm. right? So society starts living 
on the back of on the back of fear rather than possibility mm-hmm. um so you know like him or not i'm not a big fan to be honest but uh, you have the ri- the rise of donald trump uh, in the US but it's not so much the figurehead Don- Donald Trump and it's a movement uh, behind him exactly exactly um, and uh, hope uh, hope it doesn't listen to the podcast because otherwise we're we're doomed we're <laughs> going to be on his Twitter feed etc uh, etc et but but it's an interesting movement yeah. uh, which is fed by by fear um, then you have Brexit yeah. uh, you know with its merits and and, and weak points um, but the impact it had was uh, direct impact yeah. was to increase uh, anxiety against uh, foreigners and and just creating scapegoatism mm-hmm. and so on and so forth and mm-hmm. creating isolationism um, and so on and so forth and and you look at the um, the, the the rise of uh, nearly racist movements mm-hmm. across continental Europe um, well it, it goes around and round and round. Um, but in terms of trade, I think from what I've seen, the only two active responses of this of this right wing or this extreme movement has been sort of what Trump is doing with China and mm. also Brexit. I mean, I there's there's been a rise of the far right throughout Europe, but I haven't seen any actionable, Action, yeah. you know, if, uh, but trade I think, policies from these guys. I, th- I think we need to look outside uh, outside the the US and Europe and and Britain and China and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Because the biggest lesson at the minute is coming from Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, Africa, led by His Excellency uh, Presida uh, Paul Kagame uh, from Rwanda, um, and, and a very, very, very good new generation of, uh, of politicians mm-hmm. across the continent, uh, still with the notable exceptions, but uh, the, the overwhelmingly much, much better than it was mm-hmm. in the past. Um, and under the, the leadership of Paul Kagame and the African Union, mm. um, they are now establishing the, the Intra-Africa uh, Free Trade Agreement, mm. of which I believe nearly 100% of um, African states um, have signed up for. And of course, they're in the process of ratifying and so on. And if memory doesn't fail me, from July onwards, um, this largest uh, free trade area since the creation of WTO mm-hmm. um, is coming into force um, on the back of policies mm-hmm. that are completely contrarian to what the United States and the UK to a certain extent mm-hmm. and, and, and continental Europe and so on um, are undertaking through that polarization. Africa is finally coming together and I do believe that, that this creates massive opportunities. Um, your, your second question, if I recall correctly, mm-hmm. was uh, on whether this has a lag effects uh, yeah, or, this protectionism does it affect you know trade straight away or what are the resulting trade imp- implications listen I'll, I'll be very honest with you i'm very emerging markets focused mm-hmm. right so so i can give you the the emerging markets uh, outlook, Please, outlook. Yeah. And, and, and and remember belt uh, belt, and belt and road yeah. um so that dominates right so that's outside it's not outside the sphere of influence of the united states or europe but the Chinese were, as they normally are, extremely, extremely intelligent in the way that uh, they, 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 they reignited their trade routes or they're on, on the verge of reigniting their trade routes very much outside of their geographical boundaries and mm-hmm. restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was just genius because how did they do it? You know, China developed for many, many years on the back of um, internal consumption. Yeah. 
um, and, and of course creating uh, a market for, for their exports. Um, but very quickly they realized that uh, for them to continue moving the machine, they needed number one commodities that were very scarce for them and that were abundant in places like Africa, but they needed to keep their companies, uh, especially state-owned companies, mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very simple. Uh, the boats were going into Africa to pick up the commodities mm. um, and they thought, well, what the heck? I mean, these guys need to be brought uh, up in their development stage. Mm -hmm. So why don't we offer our companies our financing to make that happen? Um, and eventually the Belt and Road um, was, was, uh, was, was, was born. Mm. Um, and they are now not only significantly expanding their, their area of influence, uh, but they're also profiting a lot um, in terms of how it's executed. Mm. Um, you know, quite a few states, uh, if not all of them, in, uh, in Africa have contracted the um, uh, Chinese yuan-denominated debt mm. with China, uh, from Chinese banks and from the Chinese state mm -hmm. that is then used to pay Chinese companies yeah. to go and develop projects in um, infrastructure pro pro projects in these places, which will then benefit Chinese exports yeah. uh, tremendously. Right. So it's genius. I mean, of course, Trump is uneasy with the whole thing. Um, and mu we mustn't forget geography here because... Mm. You know, war, war and peace is all about uh, geographical expansion and contraction. Um, and what is happening in, f in effect is a um, geographical expansion from, from China. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, uh, Mr. Trump and, and his administration, and even if it wasn't Mr. Trump, someone else, someone else. Would, would be uneasy with this whole thing because it creates a threat to mm -hmm. uh, America's dominance in, in yeah. world trade. But you see also that the BNI, Belt and Road Initiative, was announced, I think, 2009, mm -hmm. right after the, the crash yes. of the West. So I yes. think that was strategic opportunistic but very sensible of mm. them to go into it when the world in the west is burning yes so they came with an alternative view of what your life could look like or what your trade routes can look like if you work with us and they can play the long game you know yes. they don't have you know the political structures we have that pivot every four to five years quite right and especially when we have uh, a president that comes in who has such forceful views it pivots to a very high degree and then the rest of the world needs to either catch up Yes. align or now we see a disalignment in europe and yes. that leaves the uk being independent from eu now needing to form their own uh, response to this exactly because the eu have been consistent all along perhaps they've been conservative they haven't really spoken out too much in terms of foreign policy or their trade because it's worked for them to um, an extent you can debate the, the, that they've got too many consensus to forge yeah uh, 20, 27 to, yeah that's it to become to become influential i mean we're doing a little bit of um, lobbying work now within the ITFA yeah. in terms of the capital rules and, and the insurance product. And, and we're learning a lot about how the European Union works mm -hmm. in, in terms of their own decision making. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting machine yeah. in terms of generating consensus yeah. uh, or even uh, majorities. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to see uh, although the Euro European Union has so much potential, it's difficult to see how um, it, come, it can materialize that potential mm. on the back of the red tape that yeah. it fosters yeah. sometimes. I find that now, only a few days ago, Macron allowed the accession talks of Albania and Macedonia to yes. begin because yes. he, he blocked it a few months ago. And he said even, you know, having tw it's hard enough having 27 members now to uh, uh, agree on things. Imagine mm -hmm. having 30 or 32. Yes. You know, these 
smaller Balkan players are going to be there for they're not going to contribute much I don't think yes their markets aren't, too, aren't that big for any major EU player to really care about they want it for their own benefit mm. but they are sort of needing the EU to cooperate with them without offering anything substantial back to them so Definitely. it's always going to be like it's going to be like a donor system where the big boys and girls um, I guess France and, and Germany that play the biggest role mm. need to coordinate you know their responses to all these things happening as the two biggest players and the rest of them middling players and fledgling players need to either agree or if they don't agree you see things like what's happening in Hungary yes. what's happening in Italy mm. voicing there in, in Poland what's mm. happening there with the with the with the with the, with the right-wing party there yes. showing their d- 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 disagreement they had there was very well aligned in the past when there was only about uh, about 13 mm. as you grow and grow and grow you need to coordinate this yes. it's hard enough for you and I to agree on something yes, yes. Where, where where can we go for for dinner something <laughs> that is you know that has has a fight has an end game right I'm, I'm a big believer game. I'm a big believer in democracy but someone yeah. needs to be there to make yeah. that tough call so. yeah and then you have you know issues like the the EU commission which uh, which many you know people who believe in democracy which I'm sure is mm the most of the West, but when it comes time to them dictating policy, you try to have a balance in that sense, but they haven't gotten it perfect. Yeah. That's where you see the discontentment happening. Exactly. Yeah. That's where you see happening. And uh, it's very interesting from my point of view when I see the Balkan nations wanting to have accession because they think that's going to be the key mm. to their li- liberation. But I say a joke, and I, there's, you know, the population of Albania now is 2.8 million. The second they become part of the EU, it probably drop to one person <laughs> <laughs> to turn off the lights until after they leave, you know. <laughs> uh, hopefully, you know that they, they get their act together themselves in developing <laughs> infrastructure. Um, but it's uh, it's a very interesting time in, in in the world. But going back to the point of, I found it interesting when you spoke about mm. um, China's influence in in uh, in Africa. Can you give us some more from your experience? How have their influence there? How has it been taken? Mm. And also another point before actually we go into that, I find many. Even when when I sometimes speak on television or I speak to people, you know, people consider Africa a, a homogenous, you know, continent, but they forget that it's fifty-four nations, it's all anything with their but own, <laughs> with, their, with their own ambition, with their own agenda. No, no, no. But the, the, the problem is our leaderships. But I would even question whether there are f- uh, fifty-four nations. Yeah, there you go as well. I mean, the the the, the nations were imposed by uh, the colonizing powers, yeah, right. and and many many times, and you had. Uh, so many civil war situations yeah. in 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 Africa, yeah. precisely because, because someone came in and and drew a, a boundary yeah, yeah. Um, where there were two tribes that yeah. didn't really get along, and, yeah. and trying to get them both on the same space yeah. is is very challenging. Right. So, you know, uh, do you think it's helpful speaking about Africa as a, as as a home? because obviously Africa no, as, as a no, continent no. is 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 well to be so said, diverse. There's so many things happening no. in that continent. So you can't. You can never you know. think of Europe as one thing either. You can't no, speak of anything exactly, as one thing. Exactly. You know? but, but, but mistake number one in Africa is to consider that everything is the same. Yeah. I mean, crikey. I mean, go to uh, Sierra Leone or, or, or Liberia and then go down to uh, Angola or DRC mm. or, uh, you know, or, or, or um, Dar es Salaam, mm. Tanzania or, or, or Any of these Nairobi places, yeah. or Kigali. Kigali yeah. is a different place altogether, yeah, right? A different beast in, in Rwanda. But the uh, you're asking how the Chinese influence um, demonstrates itself uh, in yeah. in in Africa. How has it been taken? It's it, and how has it been taken? So I think that's probably really broad itself as a question. But can you no no no? But, it's, but, but it's, it's very interesting. Let me give you my my Angolan experience. Okay. Right. So um, every third or fourth vehicle you see on the road is Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, especially the trucks. They're all yellow and uh, and red and uh, orange and so on. Sino truck, mm-hmm. um, sino colors. Yes, 
the, uh, the, the, the so-called taxis, uh, African taxis, which used to be Toyota Hi-Ace, uh, are now Chinese versions of that. Um, the Chinese build, uh, sort of build cities within cities and infrastructure and whatever, mm -hmm. and they bring their own workforce, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's huge. So the, the road signs are, so for example, in, in Angola, they're both in Chinese and in Portuguese. Okay. Um, and then you have a, a very, very interesting phenomenon as well, which is, of course, Chinese population moving there and establishing themselves there, you start having um, uh, a mix between Chinese and the local population. So you have Chinese kid with, with African, uh, African roots. Um, and also the other phenomenon is the spin-off. So the, uh, the Chinese uh, tend to go into these countries as part of state-owned enterprises yeah. and then they find out their own business niches and uh, they yeah. set off on themselves mm -hmm. by i don't know importing food stuff to to service the uh, the chinese communities mm -hmm. um and um and, and eventually they create uh, a, an entrepreneurial community of mm -hmm. their own so it, it's it's huge uh, just to give an idea when uh, when i was in angola uh, I participate and Angola and the rest of Africa, mm. to be honest. I participated in so many meetings uh, where I was so kindly welcomed and hosted by by my Chinese counterparts that I felt uneasy by not uh, being able to to speak Mandarin. So I I started learning. I've mm. I've got about uh, when did I start learning? It's about seven years now oh, of wow. um, Mandarin speaking. Don't test me because I won't talk uh, about speaking myself. because uh, it's it's still terrible, but. Yeah. Um, but but I felt the urge and the need to uh, to, to get to know the, the language. It's it is dominant. Mm -hmm. it, it can't be avoided mm -hmm. anymore. And on the ground roots, the actual people, you know, the day to day people who live who don't work in sort of in your field, you know, how have they taken the influence of of China physically being there? You know, cooperating it's and perhaps sometimes not cooperating. It's the usual. So uh, you know, they're treated as. Uh, you know, as uh, unfortunately it happens in Europe as well, with yeah. with uh, citizens from one part of yeah. Europe migrating to another part mm -hmm, of Europe, mm -hmm. being considered second-class yeah. citizens, being really? discriminated, and so on. Uh, when when you have uh, an in invasion, quote unquote, yeah. of uh, of people from a different uh, culture, a different yeah. part of the world, they tend to become scapegoats. Yeah. Um, so anything that goes wrong is, is is their fault, yeah. right? Um, but it's normal. People, people will. I think people in the world, and again, going back to the general generational gaps, mm -hmm. um, people from these newer generations are much, much more citizens of the world. Mm -hmm. And again, thank you, internet, for that. Mm -hmm. um, and and they can they can understand a lot better um, and integrate new cultures, yeah. uh, unless you live in the center of the United States mm -hmm. and, yeah. uh, and 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 life is yeah. a big Trump rally, yeah. but. Uh, but I guess you need to take that with a pinch of salt. That's right, that's right. Because you travel quite often to Africa. I do, yeah. To, to different countries, to different cities. You're there every... Sometimes when I email you or when I call you, either goes to voicemail, <laughs> I'm not here, or in your in your email center, I'm off globetrotting in Africa again. I'm okay, he's <laughs> off again. Uh, if someone were to, were, to, uh, were to, on a more cultural side, if they were to visit, if they haven't been, mm. you know, to the continent before, or perhaps if they've been to the, you know, most, you know, generic places, mm. you know, if they've been to sort of holiday spots, you yeah, know, and yeah. sort of even in Egypt or yeah. space like where would you think would be a good place for them to, to experience how it's developing and the side of Africa where, where we don't perhaps Rwanda, see it? Rwanda, undoubtedly. Really? Undoubtedly. Because you've got your, your, your charity there obviously yes, and you're yes, doing yes, a, a, yes, a, a yes, lot of good, 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 good yes. work with them. So 
but I'm privileged because uh, under uh, under President Kagame or Presida Kagame, as, mm -hmm. as we call it in Kinerwanda, um, we 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 have the foresight of, of his leadership mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and the creation of uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Do you know that, for example, there are there is a at least one company manufacturing laptops in Rwanda. No. Do you know that there is a company, very good company, Mara Phones, uh, manufacturing phones in Rwanda, smartphones. Mm -hmm. It's incredible, yeah. absolutely incredible. There are motorcycles being built in Rwanda. There will be a car assembling uh, plant in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's unbelievable. Do you know that Rwanda is the country in the world, uh, I believe, so if I'm quoting incorrectly, I, I, I beg forgiveness, but if it's not the country in the world, it's one of the... Uh, with the largest uh, women representation in, in public office. Okay. It's unbelievable. That's right. The whole country is managed as a big corporate. Uh, the, 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 the president sets KPIs. He then brings all his top ministers and so on on an off-site. Um, he then gives them their KPIs, and then KPIs are cascaded throughout mm -hmm. the entire um, infrastructure. infrastructure. Yeah. From the top down. Correct. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got KPIs everybody okay. and uh, they live and die by those KPIs Very good. and um, sometimes it's like um, how do you call it uh, that TV show where the guy would say you're fired uh, uh, Apprentice the, the apprentice, apprentice exactly with Donald Trump as well well yes <laughs> uh, although President Kagame is a much, much nicer yeah. and, and, and better leader, at, at least in my eyes. Oh, very good. And is there anything else that you want to the people listening to this or the audience to know about the charity work you're doing? And if they want to help contribute in, in whatever way, how would they be able to do that? Very good. Thank you for the opportunity. Look, uh, the, the charity in itself works a little bit like uh, SOS Villages, but without the same infrastructure. Okay. We, take, uh, we take children off the streets. Um, so in Rwanda, or the name of the charity just so the shelter, them. shelter them, shelter them, so the www.shelterthem.com. Correct. Okay. Um, and through the website, you can contribute, you can sponsor children, you can contribute to different projects, and so on. Yeah. The way it works is we take kids off the streets, normally with uh, with single mothers who live in extreme poverty, um, and we give them a ceiling, so we give them a home. Uh, we give them food, we give them health insurance, and uh, eventually, most importantly, uh, we give them education. Okay. So last year, we opened a, uh, a kindergarten, mm -hmm. um, and I was very privileged because I was heavily involved in the creation of that kindergarten. So mm -hmm. uh, as you may imagine, a banker turned... Uh, turned <laughs> so philanthropist. A philanthropist, or, or, or more, you know, just... Uh, focused on education I, yeah. I had to go out and buy all the toys myself wow. i had to hire the teacher myself with with the the staff on the ground my yeah. country manager jules and uh, and the rest of the team we designed the entire kindergarten ourselves um we ordered all the equipment ourselves mm -hmm. um we designed the curriculum ourselves mm -hmm. it was uh, it was very interesting a of, yeah a lot of heavy lifting very heavy lifting so um uh, education is absolutely critical so we we have uh, 20 to 30 children now in Kigali and this, uh, we call it Early Childhood Development Center. Mm -hmm. um, and these children didn't even, you know, they, 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 they've learned how to read, believe it or not, mm -hmm. in the space of uh, nine months now. They get three meals a day. Everything is super professional Very as such. Um, only about 10% of children in Rwanda and Make no mistake, it's Rwanda, so one of the, the most advanced countries in Africa. Only 10% of the children attend early childhood education. Um, what we do then is when they move on to the 6-plus, um, so yeah. primary, 
Uh, we organize study focus groups for them. Uh, and we've got kids that have gone, gone all the way to university now. Very good. Um, we've got two main sites. One is Kigali, so the, the capital. Mm -hmm. And then we're supporting a community uh, in a different um, district called uh, or province called Bugasera, mm -hmm. uh, in a community called Gateco, where mm -hmm. we have a piece of land. Um, and uh, we're building... Uh, so our biggest dream is to build a vocational school there. Okay. But it comes with a huge price tag, so we're taking baby steps. Are the you looking to fundraise now as well? Definitely, yeah. So uh, Crown Agents Bank, for example, has been uh, a kind partner. Um, and uh, we've got a huge community in Canada. Interestingly, uh, Portuguese community as well in Canada. And we've got a, a brilliant, brilliant community in Newfoundland, of all places. Um, one of the families, uh, the, the, the Lanes, have uh, gener very, very generously contributed this year uh, for the construction of, uh, of our community center in, in Gateco, uh, where we'll house another early childhood development center uh, with capacity up to 70, 70 kids. So how many kids do you work with now? In total, uh, 170. Well, right. 168 was the total as of uh, 31st of December oh, last right, year. Good, right, good. So okay. it's it's very exciting. It uh, like it. it takes uh, takes a bit of my time. Yeah. It, it's also open immense it's opportunities. It's excuse to go and see how uh, how uh, how you're uh, helping their lives as well. You know, oh, listen and seeing and traveling not only for business but also to give back. In, so every in so every every ways. time I go to that part of the world, of course, I I stop uh, stop in Rwanda. Yeah. Uh, I've got. Uh, well, she's not my, my daughter, but uh, I call her my daughter, uh, Sandrine. She's the same age as Alice, my biological daughter. Yeah. Uh, and Sandrine uh, is now going to the international school in, uh, in Kigali and, uh, and give, being given all the, the opportunity to develop herself uh, to her full potential. Mm -hmm. and, um, and of course, every time I can, I, I'll go there. And yeah. uh, we're heavily involved and engaged in, in, in making sure that the kids are well looked Very after. Good. And if uh, people want to get into contact with you, Duarte, uh, specifically, if they have any questions about trade finance or if they're young professionals, if uh, any, what routes would they go about to find you? Listen, I'm, I'm an open book. Uh, Duarte.pedreira.crownagentsbank.com uh, or on if you want my, well. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn. Uh, definitely. Yeah. The podcast. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, or my personal email as well at gmail.com. So gmail.com. Completely open book. Very good. Uh, you know, if people yeah. want to interact, engage, uh, yeah. feel free. What if they want to practice martial arts with you? Cause I know you, <laughs> they, 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 they can challenge you to, 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 to a fight. <laughs> I, I'm a very, very peaceful guy. Whenever very I good. got, uh, so I practice, uh, I practice Shotokan Karate. You're a black belt now, no? Yes, yes, Very yes. Good. I've been doing it for over 25 years. Wow. Um, and uh, it's one of my biggest passions. Uh, if my if my sensei sensei Ote is listening to this, you won't be very happy because I haven't uh, been to the dojo I haven't been to the dojo for six months. <laughs> oh, no. And uh, but I fully intend to go back. I'm very just good. trying to convince my girlfriend to uh, to, 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 to come with me. That's um, but eventually I will go back and, uh, and 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 enjoy the the lights of karate nice. again. Is there anything else that you, that you you want to mention in terms of your projects or anything that you want to? No, I think we we, we we covered the lot. Covered some really good topics. Yeah. I'm, really good topics. I'm really really grateful for uh, for, for the sure. opportunity. I'm going to interview uh, Andre also about the really? context. Really? So yeah, uh, I'll, I'll excellent. interview him and some others lined up. So excellent, excellent, excellent. Great. I guess we'll finish it here. Thank you so much. Duarte. Thank you, my friend. Thank Take you. Appreciate it.